Jay Famiglietti is a hydrologist, a professor, and the executive director of the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan, where he holds the Canada 150 Research Chair in Hydrology and Remote Sensing. He's also the chief scientist of the Silicon Valley tech startup, Waterplant. Before moving to Saskatchewan, he served as a senior water scientist at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory at the California Institute of Technology. From 2013 through 2018, he was appointed by Governor Jerry Brown to the California State Water Board. Jay Famiglietti, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So you've said that after carbon, we need to pay attention to national water policy and to the food, water, and energy nexus. What kind of changes to public policy and rapid transitions need to take place in order to mitigate water crisis and food shortages? Well, when we look at the United States, the big picture is in the places where we grow food, like the Central Valley of California or the Southern Ogallala, Southern High Plains, so Texas, Oklahoma, into Kansas. These are places that are running out of water. And so that puts not only our water security at risk, but our food security at risk. And so these aren't like state problems. These are national problems. These places can't grow the food that needs to be grown for the nation using only their water. So we need a national strategy and we don't have one. And that you know, when people hear national strategy, they think like, oh my gosh, pipelines. And that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. I mean, there are simpler things that we can be doing, like integrating groundwater into interstate policy and say the Colorado River Basin discussions. We can be thinking about the future of agriculture. Is it going to stay in these regions, these like highly focused, concentrated regions, or are we going to need to distribute it across the country to take advantage of water availability? We need to be thinking about incentivizing new methods for irrigation, for example, or maybe more judicious crop choices. So these are all things that could be part of a national strategy or national policy, and and we don't have one. And if you could go into some of those, you're talking about new irrigation methods, because I know your new season and what about water is exploring some of these technologies, synthetic biology, all these kind of things. So first of all, you know, Industry uses most of the water that's withdrawn around the world. That's most of the food industry. So depending on the country you're in, it's anywhere between, say, 70 and 90%. And when we're thinking about improving efficiency and saving water, you know, it's basically water accounting. You have to look at the big numbers. The municipal part of this is much smaller. So any savings that we can realize in agriculture are huge. So there's a lot that can be done. Most of the world still uses really inefficient flood irrigation, which is just like it sounds. You build a berm around a field and then you flood it. And a lot of that water evaporates. And so it's quite wasteful. So there are technologies, drip irrigation, deep drip irrigation, covered crop irrigation, which limits evapotranspiration, covered soil irrigation, which can save a lot of water. But even if they only saved a little, that would be huge savings across all of agriculture. There's Lots of progress that's being made in crop breeding for more dense root balls that store more carbon that can access water in the soil profile, depth in the soil, and can be more drought and saline tolerant, right? So there's lots going on in the world of agriculture that can lead to potentially huge savings. And is drip irrigation becoming less expensive? I know it was just like used selectively on certain crops, but is it feasible to be available for low-cost crops? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So it is really expensive. You know, I was just visiting a winery in Sonoma Valley, looking at some water efficiency technologies that they were trying to adopt. And I asked that very question, can you switch? They basically had hanging drip. They're grown grapes. And so they're about halfway up the, the stalk of the grape plants and pointed downwards. But then I was asking about drip irrigation. And it comes down to farmers, the cost of the crop, the cost of buying the equipment and installing it, and it's expensive. And so it needs to be incentivized. So there we need help from the government, right? We need proactive help. And let's just talk about the United States, whether it's a state or whether it is national, we need to be discounting, to be giving incentives to support farmers so that they can implement these really potentially water-saving irrigation strategies. 
And you spoke about crop coverage and that's part of the regenerative agricultural movement. So that results in a savings of water because some feel like, oh, maybe regenerative agriculture couldn't be done on scale. And you just help us understand those issues. Yeah, I think that regenerative agriculture, the fact is we don't really have enough water for agriculture the way we're doing it. We just don't. And that's why in the satellite work that I do, we see all this groundwater depletion that's happening, all this, all these hotspots for disappearing water that are tied directly to the major agricultural regions around the world. But I think the question is, can we really do without regenerative agriculture? Because we have to have that soil health because it retains more water. It keeps the soils, retains the nutrients and water in the soils, and it makes them much more sustainable for the long term. So we tend to think about short terms, but I mean, let's talk about 300, 400, 500, 1,000 years. I mean, we need to be growing food for people forever. And so I think we're past the point of not thinking about the soils, not thinking about the carbon, not thinking about the water. We're way past that. Yeah, we're having discussions about soil fertility. If you're losing 0.3% a year, it doesn't sound like a lot, but that's 30% over 100 years. That's right. And we can do those same calculations on water. So sure, we're losing whatever units we want to use. It could be a certain amount of gigatons of water per year. Or sometimes we use depths. We'll say like, oh, centimeters of water, which doesn't sound like much, but then you have to multiply by the area of the state of California. And suddenly you're talking about like, you know, tens and hundreds of acre feet of water that's being lost. So you're right. I mean, when we think about the short term, it's true with sea level rise too. We think in terms of sometimes numbers that are very small, but when you do the math, you realize that they are astoundingly large. Yes. And I wanted to go into the satellite work and the groundwater. I know that in terms of your saying, maybe we'll have to reconsider some of the crops that we grow and it's going to be difficult. Are they going to give up the almonds or the avocados, these very water hungry crops? They want to look for other ways that maybe can we make savings on the pipeline, the way we've made savings and losses on the electric grid? Well, so we're not at the point in the United States of telling farmers what they can grow and, and can't grow. We probably will get there, but we're not there yet. And one of the things that we have focused on instead, and I think California is a great example with the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which has broken down the state into a number of different uh, groundwater sustainability agencies. Each one has a plan to basically minimize groundwater losses, or at least to manage them and stretch out groundwater losses over a long period of time. And so that's a slightly different approach in that what's being managed is the groundwater level. And what's not happening is we're not telling farmers, you can grow this or you can grow that. So we'll see how that works. It has a long-term implementation horizon, like 20 more years, which is a little slow. But there's a question on the table about will this be, you know, either state or national policy? Will we get to the point where we start saying, like, we don't have enough water. Let's think nationally about food security and what crops we actually need for the health of people in the United States first and go that way. And what can we grow where given water availability and, you know, how we set up our food system? So we have a tremendous amount of work to do on this topic. My fear is that we're being reactive rather than proactive. Yeah, it's coming slowly uh, around to understanding. Of course, we're with the climate change, but yeah, we're focusing on clean energy, but all these other related topics. And so tell us a little bit about what your satellite readings are telling you. What does it mean? Well, they're, they're not providing good news. <laughs> they're providing unbiased information about the state of how water availability is changing all over the world. And that picture, you know, in a nutshell is, is fairly compelling. And there are a lot of places that are losing water. And on the whole, when we look over all of the land, we're losing water, but it, it's spatially distributed. So there are places that are getting wetter, like the tropics are getting wetter. And for a while, the high latitudes, like up here in Canada, were getting wetter in, in high latitude Eurasia. And in between, the mid latitudes are getting drier. And against that broad backdrop, there are these hotspots for too much or too little water. The too little side can be ice melting glaciers. It could be groundwater depletion. It could be prolonged drought like we're seeing in the southwestern U.S. or Ukraine, or we're seeing it in Europe now. The places for too much water, largely this increasing frequency of flooding that 
is changing because of climate change. So, you know, it's a map that is very real and I wish more people paid attention to it. We can share it with you. And so that's what it's been telling us. And that's what, you know, has been driving me to really focus on science communication, get the message out that like this is happening and we need to prepare. And yes, I would love to share those maps. And you're talking about regional policy, but transnationally between Canada and the U.S., are there some issues? I don't know how it, it plays out. So we have decent relationships with Canada and the United States. So I'm a Canadian permanent resident, but I'm a U.S. citizen. So I've seen it from both sides. One thing we don't see, I think sometimes people in Canada feel that the United States is going to come and take Canada's water. And I've been here for four years and like never seen any suggestion like that. I think our relationships are strong. We share transboundary river basins and aquifers, and those relationships are very good. I think what we have to be thinking about is the future of big regions like the Great Lakes, for example, because that is one thing that both nations look at, like, hey, we have this huge water supply, but it's a shared water supply. So understanding how our transboundary relationships will persist and hopefully, you know, remain strong into the future, I think is really, really important. It's interesting. I feel on climate policy and clean energy, I think Europe is, is leading the way in many ways, but I don't know what it is for water policy and the transnational complexity. Yeah, it's really difficult. So one of the things that we find about water is that it's really under-institutionalized. I mean, UN plays a big role and there's actually a big UN groundwater meeting coming up in Paris at the end of the year. And sometimes these agencies don't really have the teeth to, to get things done. And also, I think that although a lot of the work that I do is related directly to climate, I think water sort of takes a backseat to broader climate change issues and carbon issues. So I think that in general, there's a great willingness to work together across countries internationally on water management, on securing our global water futures jointly. There's a great willingness, but it's sort of under-institutionalized. And actually, I just just yesterday finished a proposal and submitted it to try to mitigate that, to address that situation by putting in a proposal to form a basically a global groundwater coalition that is a trans team of experts that could become you know, not a governing body, but maybe the go-to body for global groundwater policy. Wonderful. Could you expand a little bit more of that? It just follows up on, and again, much of it's driven by the research that I've done with these NASA satellites. And I didn't mention the satellites are called the GRACE mission, Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment Mission. And they're really unusual in that they're able to weigh using small variations in the pole of gravity that water exerts on the satellites. Satellites like a scale, they move up and down in the sky depending on how much water there is on the ground. So we can map out these places that are gaining or losing water on a monthly basis. And you know now the satellites have been flying for 20 years. So we can see these trends. And so when you see those pictures and you start going to conferences and you start going to Washington, D.C. and going to Ottawa and going to international meetings, you realize there are not a lot of places to go and talk about this. The way we deal with water within states, within the country, you know, within the United States and even within Canada and a lot of the world is really fractured. So when you go and you try to talk about these global issues, it's, it's really, really hard. And so, again, I use the term under-institutionalized. Who is actually going to stand up? Let's just focus on groundwater because I just finished this proposal. So it's in your front brain. Groundwater is the water that's stored underground, right? It's in soil layers. It's in rock layers that are called aquifers. And we have to drill wells to pump it out. That's most of the world's fresh water, right? That is, it's far and away most of the world's unfrozen fresh water, something like 97%. And it's largely unprotected because it's out of sight and out of mind. Right. And so around the world, industry, people, farmers have just been able to drill wells and pump as much water as they want. So it's free, you know, imagine having free oil. And this is the same thing. It's you, know, you drill into the ground. And if you own the property, you can keep drilling until your well goes dry and then you can drill a deeper well. So when it comes to international issues, because a lot of these aquifers, span political boundaries, right? They're bigger than one country or two countries, or sometimes if you're in Europe, they're bigger than four or five countries. These are regional problems. 
that need regional solutions. And collectively, it's a global problem. And there are no real bodies to go to that are going to take the lead and advocate, get water on the COP agenda, get more coverage of water in the IPCC, push for industry stewardship, again, because industry is using most of the water. So that's the idea behind starting to build these institutions. And I call this one the Global Groundwater Coalition because it focuses on groundwater. It is transdisciplinary, so it's not just a bunch of professors, it's government people, it's nonprofits, NGOs, private sector. So, you know, we'll see how that, that goes. And would technologies like hydroponics or vertical farming, would that make a difference? I think if it's a NASA satellite, you can also sense where there's leaks in pipes. Would that make a significant difference in terms of the loss of water? There's a lot of solutions that I think are helpful regionally, but the scale of the water use for agriculture is really, really huge. So things like hydroponics and vertical farming, I think they're great for you know, municipal regions or at small scale. And even solutions like desalination and sewage recycling, those are largely, they're great, by the way. I mean, they're all great, but they don't really scale. So that just sort of sets the tone for how huge this water problem is. That, you know, the only way we're really going to address it is not on the supply side, it's on the demand side. We simply have to use less. The farms of the future need to be super efficient, right? They need to be using the minimum of water and nutrients to produce the maximum nutrition. Ideally, it would be nutrition that's needed within the particular country, right? I mean, the time for using that water as a free resource so that farmers can grow alfalfa and send it to China, you know, U.S. farmers, say, in Southern California, those days are gone. Yeah, and really introducing and pricing that accurate taxes, that doesn't make any sense to me. All of these food miles, it's just horrendous. No, no, you're right. And the pricing is a part of it. I mean, what I've been talking about is basically water is a free input, right? It's with on the groundwater side. Again, if you own the land, you can drill a well and you can dig, you can pump as much groundwater as you want, even if that means you're pumping water, drawing water in from your neighbors to say your east, west, you know, surrounding neighbors property. And it's a free input. So this is the classic tragedy of the commons. Why would you stop? It's not in your best interest to stop. So we need better pricing structure. Honestly, we need to redo you know, our water rights, very archaic water rights and water policy in the United States. But that's certainly not likely to happen. I mean, it would be like a century in court, literally probably like, you know, decades in court. And we won't have that water by that time. Yeah. That oh, that's right. And then it'll all be gone. Where are they doing it right? So there are a lot of examples of places that are doing a great job, but there's no perfect example. You know, one of the ones that comes up, an example that comes up frequently is Israel. Israel is technologically advanced, doing a lot of startups, really pioneers of drip irrigation and deep drip irrigation. But one thing to keep in mind about Israel is that it's very small and they don't grow a lot of food. So just the same, they're doing a great job on the irrigation technology. You know, Australia was really in the limelight there for a long time, really in the spotlight as a great manager in terms of allocation of water, especially like the Murray-Darling Basin. Very proactive about how to allocate water amongst various competing uses, like water for the environment, which often gets neglected. Water for economic growth, which sometimes will dominate. Water for people water for municipalities, water for power generation. So Australia's done a great job there. And then there's certain states in the United States that I think are worth calling out. I think Kansas has done an excellent job with its groundwater management, very integrated with cross sectors and including a huge so government, industry, academics, and including a really strong outreach component. And although, you know, the timeline on the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act in California is quite long, I think we need to recognize that it's a, a big state. And that was a landmark achievement getting that passed. That was in 2014. And when you mentioned that desalination is not 
feasible on scale? It's a question of cost or would there be like a a timeline where it would become less expensive or what makes it unfeasible on scale? Well, right now it's very expensive. So maybe over time, the cost would come down. It's extremely energy intensive. And if you're going to keep contributing to global warming to solve only the water part, you're not necessarily integrated solution, but maybe more renewables would help there. And the big problem for me is what to do with the brine. So you're pulling the salt out, but you need to do something with it. And right now, a common practice is just to dilute it and throw it back in the ocean. And so that's leading to destroying your coastlines when you do that. So the idea of having desal plants, you know, every 10 miles up and down the West Coast would destroy the coastal marine life and the beaches. Um, But is that a solvable problem? I don't know. What do you do with all that brine? I mean, this is not a problem that you and I are going to solve, right? Ourselves. I mean, we need armies of people thinking about these problems around the world. The other thing I'll say about the desalination is to do it at scale raises the whole issue of, okay, like who's monitoring the ocean? Who's to say that the United States can use all this water? When do, what are the limits on the water use? All that stuff has to be negotiated or it just leads to a different unintended problem. And there are those who don't really have access to water. There's like hydro panels that provide that. That's not necessarily scalable, but just help us understand that a little. Maybe it doesn't go to the core of the problem, but I wondered if there were issues with that in terms of upsetting the balance of the atmosphere. Well, if you do it at scale, yes, because so there's water vapor in the atmosphere. And we've known as long as there's been humankind that we can condense it out in various ways and and use it. And so doing that in a small village or, you know, a small region is fine. But if you start thinking about, I don't know, like an entire state in the Midwest of the United States, putting up giant panels to condense water and, and use that water vapor is a source of precipitation, right, in a different region. So again, it gets to this issue of what are the rights? of these different regions to extract that water. Another, I think, important point on that is that if there were enough moisture in the atmosphere in these different regions, if there were enough to make it feasible to do it at large scale, then it would probably be raining anyway, right? If there were enough moisture there that you could condense it and for a big region, then it would probably already be raining. So I really think that it's a more of a local solution and an important one locally. And when you spoke about groundwater, when the groundwater is depleted, how is it recharged? What are the methods for recharging? So it's a very natural part of the water cycle that when it rains, you know, there's a few things that happen. And say it hits the ground, it might run off. It depends on the storage capacity of the soil, or it might sink into, infiltrate into the ground. It might then be evaporated or it might penetrate more deeply, percolate down and recharge groundwater. So that's a very natural process. And so there are a lot of aquifers and that are close to the surface that can be recharged with normal rain and they can be replenished and that water is renewable. But the problem is when we go deeper and we tap into bigger and deeper aquifers that we're using more water than can be replaced on an annual basis or in human lifetimes. That's how much water we're using. We're extracting, you know, some of these aquifers took millions of years to fill up and we're burning through it in like a century. So we're not going to be recharging those. So understanding that balance between what is renewable, what's non-renewable, how do we manage that? How do we preserve the non-renewable part for future generations is you know, only really coming into focus now as a question that needs to be addressed. And you have been a communicator about this for years. You've made presentations to the Pentagon. We've seen wars over water, food scarcity as a result of that. And you were bringing this message home, but people weren't listening. Now they're beginning to listen? I think they're beginning to listen. And that's good. I wish that we had been more proactive as a society. We're not really super proactive when it comes to water, when it comes to climate. Look, we're waiting until the very end. And so I think that's human nature. But yeah, I think people are beginning to listen. I think industry, importantly, is beginning to listen and is engaging in in water stewardship and is engaging in better water accounting, which is super important. So this is one thing that I'm optimistic about is that industry is getting on board. 
And are you seeing water migration, people from America coming up to Canada? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Will we see wars over water in North America? Well, if we don't have a real national water policy and maintain our transboundary relationships with a view towards climate change, then yeah, we're, we'll have problems. But if we're proactive and we start thinking about, and especially thinking about the interstate groundwater management, the sharing of groundwater across state and maybe even international boundaries, that's something that hasn't happened and it's so important. And what brought you to Saskatchewan and more specifically, your work at the Global Institute for Water Security? Well, I came up here because it was a great opportunity to bring the water world and the food world together. So Saskatchewan is much like when you think about the United States, it's much like Kansas and Nebraska. It's just straight north up the plains. So it's a hugely agricultural area. And not only do we have a Global Institute for Water Security here, but we also have a Global Institute for Food Security. And so to me, this was a great opportunity because so much of my work points to the need to work with the food industry and the need to work with farmers and agriculture. To me, this was a great opportunity to come up, take the leadership of the Global Institute for Water, Water Security. It's the number one program in Canada. So that was also an enticement. But it was the research opportunities, really, and the great support of the Canadian government. I mean, financially, through a research chair that I have. And through the funding that Canada has pumped into water research, food research, energy research, you know, it's really been quite phenomenal. And as you contrast that with your work at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and how does that uh, work differ? Well, the work is a lot the same. I will say that I have more of an opportunity. So within NASA, there's an important focus on the development of satellites and, and technology. Everything really needs to support future satellite missions because that's the mandate for NASA. And being in government, you're not really supposed to speak out on policy. And so while the crux of the research that I do is the same, still working with satellites and tracking freshwater availability and trying to improve computer models, the freedom that I have now to talk with government leaders, I think it's really important. And so that's a big difference. Another big difference is that I found maybe it's because Canada is smaller than the United States. There's much more of a willingness on the part of the government to listen to researchers. So I think the per person funding rate is much higher, much closer connection between government and researchers. Oh, that's beautiful. You just get things done faster. And in your new season of What About Water, you're focusing on technologies. And just tell us about some of the new and exciting technologies that offer solutions. So there's lots of interesting stuff that's happening out there. So the technologies we we're talking about earlier in our conversation, so it could be breeding for more drought tolerant and saline tolerant crops. It could be research on our technology that helps industry. There's gonna be a big push and a lot of pressure on industry to do more reporting, but industry needs data, needs software to be able to do that accounting. So there's a lot of technology firms that are focused on that. The technology to do optimal water and nutrient delivery at the plant scale. So it's using the optimal amount of water and fertilizer at the plant scale. So down to the plant scale within huge farms is being rapidly developed. So these things are all game changers. And that's without talking about financial innovations. So financial innovations are also not necessarily technology, but when we think about what innovations we need, some of those are financial. Um, so whether it's incentive packages, like we were talking about before, or the need to work with investors, right? So just like we did with carbon and has been so successful working with investors who invest in the big ag companies, the big food and beverage companies, we've gotten great traction on the carbon side, driving these companies, huge multinational companies to net zero carbon. We need to be doing the same thing, right? On the water side. And so that investor push is a financial innovation. And I don't know if the Inflation Reduction Act has some provisions for that. That's a good question. I admittedly haven't paid as much to that being up here in Canada, but my understanding is that you're right. I think there's a lot of incentives for farmers and that's going to be really important. I haven't seen how that money is being spent yet, 
but again, you know, using it wisely, judiciously, I think is really, really critical. If you really want to make a difference, I think that, you know, almost needs to be surgically applied. Water is one of the most important elements for us to survive and thrive. We often take water for granted, citing the fact that it's a renewable resource. But as Professor Familietti told us, the way we handle water today does not work and our resources are dwindling. One problem, like many other issues having to do with natural resources, is that there's no clear, defined border that water adheres to, and as such, there is no one law or governing body that could help manage it. And there are more factors at play as well, especially in the U.S., namely indigenous rights. Water and indigenous rights are deeply intertwined. For example, in the Colorado River Basin, which Professor Familietti has mentioned, there are deep-rooted issues of indigenous rights at play. 30 tribes are located within and around the Colorado River Basin. This specific case is a complex issue, but indigenous knowledge and management is critical for the just handling of this water. In July of this year, 14 tribes linked to the river basin claimed that they were not being adequately consulted by either states or the Department of the Interior on a viable conservation plan. In this case, as many others, it is not enough to get states to work together, but we must gather community input and consider sovereignty at all levels, including and especially the tribal and indigenous levels. Like climate change, there's a lot of talk about the future of water and how our lives will change when we start to feel the effects of water issues. But for many in our society, lives are changing and effects are being felt. Native people, low-income people, and people of color are being hit hard by water issues. According to The Guardian, an estimated one in 10 indigenous Americans lack access to safe tap water or basic sanitation. Flint, Michigan is mostly black and low income, and there are countless more examples of water injustices. There is no doubt that water issues in this country are tied with injustices that predate these issues. As such, however, water rights and the growing attention around water issues are a chance for policymakers and changemakers to champion justice and center the needs of people often left behind. Furthermore, Professor Familietti speaks of the new technologies and management systems that can be deployed to ensure that water is managed sustainably. I really appreciated going into these issues and showing that changing the way we use water is not all about sacrifice. So many conversations in the environmental movement are framed around sacrifice and the need to scale down on habits in the ways we live our lives. And of course, turning off the tap when you brush your teeth is helpful, but real change comes when we transform the systems at play and how we approach them. For example, drip irrigation saves so much water because it rethinks how to get water from the spout of a machine to the root of a plant. Regenerative agriculture saves so much water because it rethinks how we can optimize soil health and water retention. Having said this, Professor Familietti will speak later of what it looks like to continue progressing as a society with awareness of the limits we are in. He says that the days of unbridled growth are over. Is that what we consider a sacrifice? Does changing our approach to be more regenerative and sustainable mean sacrificing growth? Personally, I think it means redefining the way we see growth and progress, which is the case for all the environmental movements we see happening today. Now, let's get back to the podcast. And on the issue of technologies, there's one in California about growing uh, the kelp elevators as an alternative for fuel for airplanes and road haulage. And But I don't know what that would do in terms of balance of you have to grow quite a lot of kelp in the sea. Marine biomass is off the coast in California. I think we could replace all of our fuel needs if 5% of the ocean were kelps and, and the kelp elevators are building there. 
Okay, that sounds awesome. I need to take a look. And the issue of seawalls. Well, so sea level rise is happening and we're committed, you know, around the world, something like a meter of sea level rise by the end of the century. And so that's a lot. And there's really only a couple of options to address that. Either you manage retreat right away from the coast or, you know, move to higher ground. So I guess there's three. <laughs> move to higher ground, retreat completely, higher ground if it's available, or build a barrier, raise our seawalls where they exist. Honestly, I think that's a, it's a losing battle. I think that my guess is that sea level rise is going to happen faster than we think. And the reason that I think that is because when it comes to our computer models, they're very conservative. And it's not that they're conservative for the sake of being conservative. They are conservative because it's really hard to know the physics of how ice sheets break up. And I think that we're finding that they're breaking up faster. I'm talking about Greenland and Antarctica. And I think what we're finding at times, there's these real sort of accelerated breakup events that are not well represented in our models. So we have a lot of sea level rise ahead of us and it's time to figure out how to adapt. And so seawalls, you look at Miami, I mean, elevating roads. I was in Nantucket a couple of summers ago, all new construction has to be raised up 10 feet. There's no silver bullet here. It's much like the freshwater problem, no silver bullet. Different regions have to figure out what they're going to do, you know, what their risk is and how they're going to address it, but they need to like do it now. Yeah. And we need greater cooperation, the people, public, or private partnerships. And I don't know if you see some exciting things on the horizon for that. Well, so public-private partnerships, I think, are really important. There's a tremendous amount of resources in the private sector. So let's get back to you know, just the water cycle. I mean, the problems are so vast that they exceed the capabilities of national governments. And we already talked about the lack of institutions and certainly money available internationally. Sector now, as we talked about, has a vested interest. It uses all the water, or 80% of the water. And we need them to become champions for water. And so there are great examples. You know, there's this Intel plant in Chandler, Arizona. So there are a lot of chip plants that are moving to the Phoenix area. And part of the reason that that's happening is, I think Intel is a good example of how Intel has worked with the city of Chandler to build a sewage recycling facility. And so they shared the cost with the city and they treat the water for the city, but they treat some water for themselves as well. And that goes into their manufacturing stream. And that means they don't have to tap into the groundwater as much. So that's an example that's out there. It could be a model for a lot of other cities. Yes. And I didn't realize how much technology uses water in, in terms of the breakdown of our water usage. So chips use a lot of water. Another one that's getting a lot of attention is data centers use a lot of water for cooling. And part of our economy continues to grow. And so we have to sort this out, right? I mean, look at our phones. They use a tremendous amount of water and in different ways. The materials, the lithium batteries, these take a lot. I mean, it takes a lot of water to mine that lithium. There are interesting solutions around that when you talk about data centers, reusing that heat, heating cities with that. And so yeah. you don't have well, to put them off in a cold climate. Yeah. No, that's right. And I think that's the way we need to be thinking. We have to break down those silos and think about, okay, we need these data centers. What can we do with the water? How can we use the water over and over and over again? How can we partner on this? You're right. What about the heat? Can we do something with that? Can we use that in a beneficial way? We can do a lot of this stuff. And this is this sort of on the optimistic side for me. First of all, the world is full of really smart people. And there's a lot of young people that are out there that are thinking about careers and especially like environmentally meaningful careers that in the past, these jobs weren't there. Now these jobs are there. And so I feel like we're in a really good position to put a lot of bright minds onto these really compelling national and global problems. And you mentioned states like Arizona or California, and you were recently in a very interesting documentary, The Fight for Water, where you expanded upon desert cities and wires people still drawn to, with all the water scarcity, drawn to these cities where water is just so difficult to come by? That's a great question. And I saw a recent study, and I, I think this is true. A lot of us don't move because of climate change. We move because of climate. 
So you move to Arizona because you want the warm weather, right? You move to Southern California because you want to go to the beach. And a lot of us don't think in the long term, like, okay, if I move to Arizona, could I run out of water? Could there be like a water apocalypse? You know, we don't, we don't think like that. We probably should, but we don't. So that's just some very recent research. So that's why I think people want to live in sunny, dry places. They're really nice and they're really tough places to the sustainability challenges are enormous. So the conversations we're having around water can be framed in the context of the severe droughts that occurred across the country this summer. And you sort of touched on that. As someone who's worked in this field for a long time, do you think that these droughts can be a wake-up call for change or do we have to wait until something even more severe happens? I think the answer to that question depends on the region and how long it's been in a drought. And so when I look at the Southwest, I see, and especially Southern California, I see a place that is really starting to wake up and really embrace this aridification, the continued drying of the West. And I think they're getting past the notion that a drought was going to end. And I think the media, the research, the messaging has been on point about mega drought. So I think that's one region that's really coming around. But take in contrast, think about Europe. I think that this drought that it's been experiencing now for a few years, I think it's really caught people there by surprise. And they're used to having their northern latitudes. They're used to having more rain. And I mentioned earlier, for a long time, they were actually getting wetter. We could see it in the data. But the last few years, the impacts of the drought have been colossal. And so I don't, I think they're waking up. But I think also that if we had a couple of wet years, then they would forget about it and go back to whatever less conservative uh, lifestyles. And you express your thoughts about hope in a recent interview, saying that you believe that the best we can do is manage our way through in the context of water issues. Do you think that we are past the point of thriving as a society and that we will merely be surviving? Well... <laughs> I think that that is an excellent question. I haven't really thought of it as sort of surviving versus thriving. And I think it's somewhere in between. I think that the days of sort of un, unbridled growth are gone. I think we have to temper our expectations. That doesn't mean we can't thrive. I guess we need a new definition of thriving where it's not continued economic growth based on unlimited water. We have to come to terms with how much water we have and then do the best we can to flourish. So it's sort of a resetting of expectations. I mean, to prepare ourselves, you know, other countries seem to live, they have to, they, they live within their means and they're used to having a, a water diet, a water budget. I wonder if we need to have a boot camp to prepare ourselves for that, like yeah. psychologically. I'd, I'd love to teach that boot camp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what would be the quota? I mean, because it's hard for us to measure. Yeah, it really does. So People have been talking about this for a long time, and in the United States, it's been ignored. But you know, John Wesley Powell, who explored the West and explored the Colorado River Basin, that's the first thing he said was like, there's not enough water. And so these different basins should try to live within their means. And that's how we thought states should be divided up based on water availability, based on river, based on smaller river basins. And that's something that never really took hold. So what I'm getting at is that living within your means really depends on where you live. And so if you live in a place that's water rich, then it's easy to grow food. And if you're just relying on rainfall and there's enough of it, then everything's fine. But it's a lot different as you get to progressively more water stressed regions. And then how much is enough? It becomes a really important question. Like, how much do you need as an individual? Should that number be the same in Jordan as it is in Saskatchewan? These are questions we need to grapple with now. And I know that people are hesitant to take on some of those solutions like transforming wastewater. And yeah. I, don't, I just don't like the visual of it, the idea of it. Yeah. And well, so the sewage recycling stuff is amazing, frankly. And so... I think people don't really realize that we're recycling water all the time. I mean, water by definition in a water cycle, but even the surface water that we get, it's coming downstream. It's a, the upstream city's wastewater. And we sort of forget that when we take it into our local water treatment facility. So the sewage recycling is sort of like the end of the line example of that. But the technology is absolutely outstanding. 
and the water is as pure as water can be. So people just need to get over that because we don't have the option <laughs> to go find some pure, untouched water source. They don't exist. So we have to use and reuse and reuse and reuse our water. And the examples of sewage recycling, that's, you know, Orange County, the groundwater replenishment system in the Orange County Water District in California, or in Singapore, the new water facility, these are great examples. And I encourage people to visit if you happen to be in Singapore or in Orange County, or just go to the websites and really educate yourselves about how water is treated and what you're already drinking in your city is basically in part recycled sewage water. And there's also that lack of trust in terms of the water that comes out of the tap. And we have this issue with plastics waste, but there's so many chemicals like the PFAS and people just not knowing it's legal, but is the water safe? How might you alleviate that? Or where can we go to? I know that the EPA publishes things for that the water is tested, I guess, and we know about that, but just help us understand that a bit more for those who have reservations about drinking tap water in their region. Well, I think these days we have good cause to be a little bit wary of our tap water, given what's happening in some cities in the United States and thinking about Flint and thinking about Jackson. So not everyone's water is great, but you know what? In many cities, in fact, most cities, it actually is great. There will always be the issue of industry sort of trying to game the system versus what is the EPA monitoring for versus what is industry releasing into the environment. So that puts the EPA, it puts the environmental community always sort of on watch to be looking for these emerging contaminants. And it's a bit of a game and one where I think, again, some national policy could be really helpful. Most water districts in the United States publish their water quality. It's all available online. I always tell people, if you have any concerns at all, put it through an activated charcoal filter. I won't mention any brands, but you know, many of us have the charcoal filters in our refrigerators. Make sure to change your filters where you can buy the pitchers that have the filters. And that's what we do at our house. And just, you know, stay in touch with Go Look Online. And most cities are extremely transparent about their treatment and publish the water quality regularly. You've touched on this throughout the conversation, but I wondered if you'd expand on where water stands in the daily discussion around climate change. And do you think all of it is intertwined or do some water issues stand alone? I think water is taking a backseat. And personally, I feel like, and I have this as a pinned tweet on my Twitter account, water is the messenger that delivers the bad news of climate change to your front door. So in the work that I do, it's heavily intertwined, but it's taking a back seat. There are parts about water that are maybe separate from climate change, and that could be the quality discussions, the infrastructure discussions, although they're you know somewhat loosely related to climate change and they're impacted by climate change. That's sometimes part of the reason why it gets split off because it's thought of as maybe an infrastructure problem, but you know the changing extremes the aridification of the West, the increasing frequency, the increasing drought, these broad global patterns that I've been talking about that I've been looking at with my research, that's all climate change, just 100% climate change, 100% human driven. And so it does need to be elevated in these climate change discussions. And we didn't really mention what drew you to water in the beginning as you were growing up in Rhode Island. Yes, that's right. What drew you to this life of water? Well, I grew up as a, really an outdoors person. Lots of time at the beach as a kid. Um, did lots of camping growing up, you know, in my teens. So lots of outdoor stuff. And you're always near the water. Also, I grew up at a time in the 60s and the 70s that was really the birth of the environmental movement. So here I was, an outdoor person who really valued being outdoors, didn't like going to the beach and seeing trash on the beach. And Listen, the rivers in Rhode Island, when I was a kid, you couldn't go in them. This is the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. So they're heavily polluted. So that had a huge impact on me. And so I studied geology when I was in college and then migrated, uh, you know, focused on water. And who were some of those important teachers for you? Well, I've been blessed to have a number of great mentors. And, you know, it started when I was in college. So I was studying geology at Tufts University. And had a professor there named uh, Jim Hume, great, great guy. He's, he's passed away now. 
but he just gave me such confidence in the, you know, he would always say, so the beauty about geology is that a lot of it's hidden. So, right, it's buried under soils. And so you look for the evidence and then you like construct a story. So the evidence that you can see, and then you put together a plausible story. And he would say things like, well, you know, your story is as good as my story. It just has to make sense. And that gave me like a tremendous amount of confidence um, to know that I had the freedom to put a story together that was supported by the evidence. So, so he was huge, but you know, then of course my master's supervisor, Sarush Sarushin at Arizona and PhD supervisor, Eric Wood at Princeton, and you know, could go on and on with various mentors. But really, I think for me, it started in college with Professor Hume, who by the way, used to take naps in the geology lab table in the afternoon. And so was my hero, not only as an academic advisor, but because he had the confidence to just take a nap in front of everybody on a geology lab table on any given afternoon. Well, we know that's where some of the good ideas come. <laughs> and also invites the brilliant students to come to the fore and maybe teach their own yeah. lesson. <laughs> <laughs> right. Professor Hume is napping. And so right, the TA needs to help us out. Well, finally, as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I'd like them to think of that we're all stewards of the earth and the environment. And we're all, you know, compared to earth history, which is over four and a half billion years old, we're, we're just here for a short while. And so that it's important that we think of ourselves as stewards of intergenerational knowledge. And so just like I pass on this knowledge and my experiences to students and through discussions like this, I want to empower our young people right? To do the same. And also, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, if you're interested in the environment today, there are so many entry points and so many more jobs available than when I was in college. So it is, I mean, green technology, blue technology for water, anything related to sustainability, um, so many more opportunities. So, you know, go for it. And remember to pass on your knowledge and your stewardship values to the next generation. Well, thank you for your stewardship, Jay Familietti and the Global Institute for Water Security, and for the vitally important work you do for helping us understand water security and scarcity and how we can better protect and manage this most valuable resource that gives life to everything. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Thanks so much, Mia. I really appreciate it. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Evelyn Moll with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Evelyn Moll. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.